Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to take place? He replied, Watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you one wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed, even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm, and you will win life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let those in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, 
you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen. And that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. If I asked you to describe your favorite vacation, most of you would start with a final destination as a summary of that vacation, of that trip. Then you would probably go back and zoom in on some of your favorite moments of that vacation. The same thing is happening here in Luke chapter 21. Jesus gives a summary of the end of the trip, and then he goes back and talks about some of the things that will happen on the journey. If you were to leave Maine on a car trip headed towards California, then you know where the final destination is, and if you plugged an address into your GPS, it will say, this is the final destination, this is when you can expect to be there, and then the GPS will go back and will give you turn-by-turn directions, showing you each exit as you approach. In many ways, that's what happens in Luke chapter 21. Verses 8 through 19 give the big overview of the trip. Then Jesus zooms in on a couple of highlights. And then he concludes with some some hints for the journey. Some applications that we need to know as we make this trip. I notice in verses um, 7 and 8 that the disciples are curious. As we are curious. For they ask, when is this going to happen? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? When are we going to get there? You know, it's natural for us to be curious about what's going to happen. As early as Genesis, in the third chapter, God begins a prophecy about the cross. He tells Eve about something that will happen, but he doesn't say when. In Genesis chapter 12, God predicts the future of Abraham's family. He says, through your descendants, all the people of the world will be blessed. God tells Abraham what will happen, but he doesn't tell him, oh, by the way, this isn't going to happen for 2,000 years. Later, God prophesies to Moses what will happen when he engages Pharaoh. And God tells the Israelites what will happen before they begin marching around the city of Jericho. 
And everything after the Song of Solomon in our Bibles in the Old Testament is prophecy. Telling both short-range and long-term what will happen. Some was fulfilled in the near future, and some still waits to be fulfilled. So the Old Testament frankly withheld the time frame of when will things happen. And Jesus also refuses to answer the when question that the disciples have here in verse 7. But the disciples asked another question. When will this happen and what will be the signs? The immediate context of the question was the destruction of the temple. Jesus says, see this beautiful temple? Not one stone will be left upon another. And they wanted to know, uh, what is the indication that that is about to happen? But Jesus expands the time frame to include everything from the following Sunday, the resurrection, until the end of time. And as Jesus describes the big picture, he starts with a general caution. Now, when we think about when and what, it is important for us to realize that oftentimes when we think in terms of days or weeks, the Bible is talking about terms of years or millennia. As a matter of fact, many believe that Eve expected her offspring to be the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. But it didn't happen for 4,000 years. And we read that Abraham, when he says, you will have a son, he wanted it to happen right away, but it took a few decades until the promise was fulfilled. And oftentimes, as a matter of fact, in Daniel, it talks about a prophecy of weeks. But we now know that weeks were expressions of gaps of seven years. So oftentimes, the when is obscure, even though we can trust the what. But one caution that we need to have right now is Jesus says, do not be led astray. False teachers would arise almost immediately after the ascension. Philippians, Galatians, 2 Timothy, 1 and 2 John are just a few of the places, even during the first century, where it mentions false teachers. So false prophets and false teachers are not new. They've been around ever since shortly after Jesus went back to heaven. But don't be led astray by the false teachers. Because this warning is just as relevant two millennia later, because not all that claims to be Christian is truly aligned with the purpose of God. There were first century false teachers. There are current century false teachers. And not everything that claims to be Christian is aligned with God's plan. In the following verses, though, Jesus gives six characteristics of the time of the Gentiles. The time of the Gentiles is a time from the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came to indwell believers, until the second coming. 
Now, before we talk, I want to make much reference this morning to the second coming. And we must realize that the second coming is not an event as much as it is a process. You say, now what do you mean by that, preacher? I thought the second coming happened in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. I ask you, how long did the first coming, the first advent, take? Some 33 years. And the first coming involved the nativity, the baptism of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the triumphal entry, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. The first coming was not one event, it was a process of events. And so as you hear me today talk about the second coming, the second coming is also a grouping of events. I'm convinced that the second coming will be a lot longer than the first coming. The first coming was 33 years. The second coming, in my understanding of Scripture, is at least 1,007 years. And the second coming includes the rapture, the tribulation, the actual second coming, the millennium. And so that 1,007 years is what is referred to in Scripture as the second coming. And that, pro, that group of events is the next thing on God's calendar. And so we can look towards the end of the journey. That's the California as we're driving through Ohio and Pennsylvania and Indiana on our way towards the destination. But on the journey, these are six things that we can trust. As we look towards the horizon, these are six events that we can expect to experience. The first is false messengers. They happened in the first century and they continue to this day. Krishna, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, L. Ron Hubbard are just a few who have claimed enlightenment to a way to God. But we don't have to look any further than David Koresh in Waco or Jim Jones in Guyana to see the destruction that comes from following a false messiah. Don't be surprised when we see false messengers, false leaders who claim to be a representative from God. The second part of verse 8 tells us they're going to be around. Expect the false messengers. Then in verses 9 and 10, we see a second characteristic of this time of the Gentiles, a time that so far has lasted about 2,000 years. And the second characteristic is you can expect that there will be wars and uprisings in verses 9 and 10. See, the, the end of time as we know it will not be a at once. Jesus says it won't be immediate. Jesus says it won't happen right away. Yes, I believe that the rapture happens in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. But the events of the second coming involve many events that are wrapped up in that one 
grouping. And until that final 1,007 years begins, we can expect to hear about wars and uprisings. As a matter of fact, this may surprise you, but I have never been pregnant. But my wife has experienced it three times. And I have learned that the early contractions are not indications of the approaching delivery. As Matthew chapter 24 verse 8 says, these are the beginning of the birth pains. So just because we heard about World War I, World War II, the Korean conflict, Vietnam, and those are just American conflicts, and we can look at the Revolutionary War and the Spanish-American War, and we can look at the War on Terror, and all around us we see different wars and uprisings, and during this time of the Gentiles, you can expect to hear about wars. Political conflict has existed for thousands of years, and it will continue until the second coming. Do not believe anyone who claims to be moving toward a world peace. Because world peace will not happen until after the great battles of Revelation 19. When Jesus comes in Revelation 19.11, mounted not on a donkey, but on a white horse, only then will world peace be amongst us. Alliances and treaties are no substitute for the king who will set all things right. And until Jesus comes dressed in white, Riding on that white horse, we can expect wars and conflicts and uprisings and turmoil. But I also see Jesus giving a third description of this time in which we live. For he says in verse 11 that you can expect natural disasters. Earthquakes. Terrors and great signs in the sky should neither surprise nor alarm us. Things happen below the surface of the earth that cause the tectonic plates to shift, yielding tidal waves and earthquakes and meteor showers and eclipses and planetary alignment are happening in the space above us. These are signs that the end is coming, but not yet arrived. Disaster movies may play well in the theaters, but rest assured, the earth as we know it will not be destroyed by meteors or a tsunami. After the rebellion of Revelation 18, Jesus will establish a kingdom on earth in Revelation 20. And only after a thousand years of the kingdom that he establishes on earth will there be a new heaven and a new earth. So don't believe the disaster stories from Hollywood. 
Yes, there are meteor showers. Yes, there are natural earthquakes and tsunamis, but that's not the end of the earth. For Jesus will come back to this earth. Then there will be a thousand years where he reigns on this earth before the new heaven and the new earth ever come. So when we see natural disasters, it should not alarm us that somehow the end is coming. It tells us that the next thing is about to happen. Finally, I see in verse 12, and then uh, Jesus kind of explains it a little bit more in verses 16 through 18. He says, my friends, you can expect persecution. Verse 12 reminds us that the persecution and the martyrdom of believers does not catch God by surprise. I was just told this morning about a group of 17 missionaries who were kidnapped in Haiti. This persecution does not catch God by surprise. It's an indication that the next thing on God's calendar is getting closer and closer. Verse 16 in front of us explains that family is not forever. No matter what the holiday cards say, no matter what the Hallmark movie proclaims, family is not forever. Eventually, family will turn on one another. Jesus prophesies in verse 16. Verse 17 tells us that there is a time coming that will be every man for himself. And the every man for himself mindset will divide families just as Jesus predicted in Luke chapter 12. Jesus says, do you think that I came to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. The whole message of Jesus Christ divides those who accept it and those who reject it. And there will be people in your family who reject the gospel. And if they reject the gospel, and if they reject the Savior of the gospel, they'll be willing to turn you into the authorities that may even lead to your arrest, your punishment, and your death. Now, you may be wondering, how does the last phrase of verse 16, and how does verse 18, how can they both be true? How can some of us be brought to death and no hair of our head will be harmed? I I think the the phrase, "a a hair of your head, indicates that this is a proverb. It's a figure of speech. And all the bald people said, Amen. For throughout Scripture, we see it in, in Luke 12, Acts 27, 1 Samuel 14, 2 Samuel 14, 1 Kings chapter 1. At least five different times, the Bible refers to the hairs of your head as a figure of speech that God is paying attention to you. And so he says, even if your body is killed, God is paying attention so that you will not perish. The ultimate reality is that even if the body is put to death, verse 16, that many of us have memorized the promise of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Yes, they may kill your body, but just because your body is dead does not mean that you have 
perished because God is watching us. Even the diminishing number of hairs on our head. I see in verses 13 through 15 another sign that describes life in our times. And it is the fact that we have an irresistible testimony. As we get closer to the end of the time of the Gentiles, our testimony has been able to spread in ways unimagined by previous generations. In biblical times, vessels existed that could navigate from Rome down through the waterways over to Asia. But ships in the later 15th century connected the American and the European continents. In the 16th century, the printing press revolutionized written communication. In the early 20th century, radio began to communicate sounds. And by 1926, the first non-commercial, educational, and religious radio station launched. Christian radio was not even thought of before 1925. Technology continued to be leveraged to expand the Christian message Jesus says, I will give you a mouth. I will give you a voice. And technology has been leveraged to expand the Christian message with aviation, television, satellite television, so that we saw the collapse of Iraq on our sets, in our living rooms as it happened. The World Wide Web and now mobile social media is providing a mouth and a wisdom, verse 15 unlike just five to ten years ago. Even this message from our own little church here in Cottonwood Falls, Kansas, can be accessed by Facebook by 2.9 billion users. And we're also broadcasting on YouTube, which has 2.3 billion users. Between those two... That's over 5 billion people who have access to what's being said right here in Chase County, Kansas. This irresistible testimony, a testimony that cannot be refuted, a testimony that cannot be denied, we now see technology indeed carrying out exactly what Jesus said would happen. And finally... Verse 19 hints about a time of endurance. For endurance hints that some people do not endure. And this word endurance in verse 19 briefly describes for us what Matthew 24 takes four verses to describe. Matthew 24 explicitly says, Some people will fall away, but blessed are you if you endure is Luke's message. A word has been coined to describe a current trend that is being embraced by an alarming number of people who used to consider themselves born again. The phrase is exvangelical. Exvangelical describes those who have deconstructed their faith and now disavow any allegiance to Christ or the gospel. And some who used to be 
preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ now describe themselves as exvangelical. I have left the church. The falling away that Matthew 24 tells us is a contrast to the endurance of verse 19 that Luke speaks of. I have a young man whom I discipled who just this week posted on Twitter how he is questioning young earth creationism and the inerrancy of scripture. Unfortunately for many, the loss of confidence in the scripture leads to the delusion and the rebellion like that of Eve. There will be a falling away. But blessed are you if you endure. If we were making a cross-country trip, we would encounter some sites that deserve special attention. And this is what Jesus does in the following verses. As we move from the long journey to the next site on the trip, if Jesus could accurately describe the near events, Pentecost and the destruction of Jerusalem, it gives credibility to his promises that lead us up to the second coming. So Jesus looks near future, just around the next bend of the journey, and he says that desolation is about to happen. This is an echo from Daniel chapter 12 when a detestable thing happens so that the temple is desecrated and offerings are no longer able to be offered to God. In the Roman invasion of AD 70, the temple and the altar was destroyed so that all that remains now is the eastern wall. And no temple meant that sacrifices could no longer be offered. And if sacrifices can't be offered, the temple is now desolate. It's empty. It can't serve its purpose. So verse 21 of Luke 21 tells us about citizens leaving the city. It talks about the vengeance of God that was prophesied in Hosea chapter 9, verse 7, as God uses foreign powers to punish his people for their disobedience. And verses 23 through 24 describe how, the, how complete this punishment will be upon the Jews of Jerusalem. And from the near sign of Jerusalem falling in AD 70, Jesus then moves back to the longer journey and the longer story. The longer story is we must anticipate the finish line. Because nature and nations and normal relationships will experience crisis throughout verses 25 through 27. When the events of our life and our optimism is in turmoil, believers should not lose hope. For when life is in turmoil, it is then that we see the Son of Man and we will experience our redemption coming to the rescue. When things look bad, stand up. Be ready for your redemption draws nigh. When the earth has lost all hope and all ability to cope, Jesus returns with power and great glory. Amen? When this world loses hope, Jesus comes back. Finally, in verse 28, Jesus in one way answers the the disciples' when question. In verse 28, he says, when this happens... 
Now, Jesus does not actually give a date reply, but he gives a how reply. When will this happen? This is how you will know that this is about to happen. How are we to reply when these things start to happen around us? The first is in verse 28, straighten up. The reality is that the second coming is to give us hope. It is to give us encouragement, and it is to give us strength. Raise up your heads. We move from the downcast apathy and our discouragement to a battle readiness when we place our trust in the blessed hope of Christ's return. The fact that Christ is coming back ought to give us hope, not cause us to despair. For we walk by faith, not by fear. In verses 29 to 33, Jesus uses a a story of the changing color of the foliage to tell the people, you need to watch for these things. Jesus doesn't set a date, but he indicates a season is coming. And so we need to watch for the coming of that season. Whenever we see one or six of these things in verses 8 through 19, we need to prepare for action. We need to realize the leaves are changing. We are not to use prophecy as an indication of despair. Woe is me. We use prophecy as a reminder to hope that better things are about to happen. Because when we watch the signs and we hope in the coming, finally it tells us in verses 34 through 36 that we need to watch ourselves. Watch yourself as the day coming. Don't worry about the signs. Don't worry about how the government is responding to the signs. Don't worry about the government program. Don't worry about um, nanobots that are tracking. Watch yourself. See, delay is no no excuse for doubt. Just because he hasn't come yet doesn't mean he isn't coming. We have never been closer to the second coming than we are right now. Article 12 of our church's doctrinal statement says, We believe in the personal, premillennial, and imminent coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that this blessed hope has vital bearing on the personal life and service of the believer. If we believe that there is coming a second coming, it ought to help us to watch ourselves so that we stay alert. I actually see in the final verses here that we need to stay awake. Prophecy ought to keep us from apathy. We ought to pray because prophecy ought to motivate our communication with God. We need to pray for strength because strength is required for service, not for passivity. Jesus doesn't say, when you see the day coming, sit back and wait for it to happen. He says, when you see the day coming, pray for strength because we have a message to tell the people around us. And then he finally says, And pray that you will be able to stand. And I think it's implied to stand without shame before the Son of God. When Jesus comes back, will he find us watching and waiting? Will he see us standing in the purity of Christ? 
or living in the debauchery of this world. Our response song this morning is a, a the song is a word of testimony. It's a word of celebration. It's a word of us recommitting to serve well. Now, when the slide changes here in a moment, the music starts without much of an introduction. So are you ready to sing with me? Marvelous message we bring. Let's stand together as we sing 